Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Two Bit Gamers podcast for episode 24. I'm your host for the evening, Mr. Laz Tanti, and joining me, as always, once again, is my good mate, Mr. David Rizzuto. David, how you going, man? Yeah, I'm pretty good, Laz. How are you? Good, 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 man. Good. Um, been busy. Uh, work's been bit, bit uh, been busy. Um, yeah, man, been uh, fixing up my uh, spare bedroom. Uh, I managed to find uh, my old collectibles from back in the 90s, man, and I've uh, <laughs> been displaying them. Uh, I'm looking at them right now. Um, a lot of the McDonald's exclusives. That a lot they, of Happy, uh, Meal, out, Happy Meals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Back in> the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, I was looking at the Silver Surfer. So, yeah, man, we, we had quite a variety of toys, man, back in... Back in our heyday, didn't we, David? In terms of yeah, uh, I Happy remember Meal I toys. Had, uh, a lot of yeah, I, I remember used to get Happy Meal toys of uh, all the stuff like Toy Story. Mm. I remember right, and I remember definitely got some for Batman and X Men. I remember X Men used to come in in uh, go karts or cars or something. Which oh, I right. okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. X Men don't even have their own equivalent of Batmobiles, but whatever. I went along with it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I also I remember I had something like. Um, I think it may have been for Bugs Life or something rather, but yeah, and all just the generic McDonald's generic, yeah. Happy Meal toys of uh, Hamburglar and Ronald McDonald mm. back then. Uh, yeah, that was uh, yeah, it was uh, quite memorable back in those days. Uh, oh yeah, but they were pretty expensive, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm not too sure, man. I can't really remember, but I was, I was very young back then. Um, yeah, but yeah, what they were like what. Five dollars, six, seven dollars for a Happy Meal. If that, I can't yeah. remember, man. <laughs> that long ago, man. Uh, We're talking the nineties, man. We're talking like mid, mid, yeah, yeah mid nineties, man. But yeah, do they even still have Happy Meal toys? Oh, I don't really know, man. I probably do, but uh, I don't know, man. I'm not. I haven't had. Yeah, a, I haven't had McDonald's in like. Least, uh, what was the last time I had it? Probably seven years ago. I had McDonald's. Mine was so about like, eleven years ago. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's funny as you get McDonald's older. Now, so. It's funny as you get older, you don't pay attention to no. these trivial things. No. That's right. Yeah, it's amazing. Exactly, man. No, is it? No, it's good. Did you have Flubber? Yes, I got a couple of Flubber toys. I got the robot and the hologram. The the robot, nice. the little um, drone that flies around with the. It's got a little screen attachment to it. Yeah, I got that. Uh, I got a couple of them <laughs> sealed as well in the plastic in the original plastic bag. Um, I don't think they're worth much, but it's still cool to have, you know. Yeah. To say the least. But yeah, uh, I, got, I actually got a couple of exclusive that are wrapped in, in the original packaging. So, toy, uh, McDonald's Happy Meal toys. So yeah. Nice. Yeah, man. No, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Man. Yeah. So. It takes you back to memory lane. Oh, yeah. it does, man. It does. It yeah. does. Yeah. yeah. I remember, yeah. Um, for me, recently, yeah, I've been working hard as well. Yeah. Um, also, I'm finished playing uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order recently. Um, yeah, it was a good game. Nice, uh, definitely. Man, nice. Yeah. Uh, especially, um, I know a lot of people, uh, friends of mine, other friends of mine are saying that they prefer the lightsaber combat from Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy. Yeah. Um, because just the animation of lightsabers is rather fluid. But I gotta say, I actually enjoy the just the parry system in Jedi uh, Fallen Order. It takes some time to get used to. Um, 
just have to know how to, how to time your blocks carefully and uh, and how to parry on time and it's good uh yeah good motion capture animation mm. um you know, just yeah. having actors that recognize on tv such as uh cameron monaghan who played the joker in gotham yeah. and uh deborah wilson who played uh who's a comedian uh on mad tv back in the day and uh no, it's mm. a good uh of the fact that the world um yeah was really rec- recreated well for a modern day star wars video game so i definitely recommend playing it if you haven't oh, and i believe that the sequel jedi survivor is coming is supposed to come out sometime next year yes as that's year. right i heard about that yeah yeah uh, but it's only exclusive for the the current gen consoles isn't it so it's, i don't think it's exclusive for the ps4 and second the i don't think it would be no yeah. because like, PS4 is previous expected, yeah. Yeah. PS4 expected to uh, uh, see its uh, production sometime production. next year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, just, yeah. So I definitely expect it to be on the PS5 going forward. Uh, I know that the new Robocop uh, first person shooter game is only a PS5 exclusive. Mm. Well, I'm not, not too sure if it's on Xbox as well, but I definitely know it will only be on PS5 and not on PS4. Um, PC yeah. either? Not for PC either? It'll definitely be on PC. Jedi okay. Survival will okay. definitely be on PC. No, I'm, I'm talking about um, Robocop, so is this exclusive to the PS5, is it, and nothing else? Or? I, I think Robocop is also on uh, PC as well. Okay. What I remember. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, cool. yeah, if you're into first person shooters, yeah, you might I'll want to give that. Yeah, I'll definitely look into that, man, once that comes out. Yeah. For sure. Well, the trailer's already been released there. Yeah, I've saw, I've saw, I've saw yeah. the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it uses the the newest Unreal Engine, definitely, or the latest definitely. Unreal Engine. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that looks yeah, it looks very detailed, man. Graphics look very nice and smooth, as you would expect for you know for for current gen game. But no, it looks very very nice. So yeah, man, no, that's good, man. So you've you've clocked it. So overall, would you recommend this game to all the definitely. Star Wars? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you, yeah, if you love your Star Wars, yep. if you're a Star Wars fan, definitely you get it. But even if you're yep. a casual fan, or even if you're not even a big fan, yeah, definitely give it a oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, give it a try. Because one of the things, apart from uh, just the lightsaber action, is that you get to unlock all of your Force abilities. So you get to freeze or just pause it, uh, your opponents, and then you get to just uh, pull and push. There's a lot of puzzle solving puzzle and problem solving yeah. challenges in this game as well i remember that uh at some point in jedi fallen order you had to push all these spears across in order to unlock a platform in in order to continue on your journey so there's a lot of it a lot of thinking that uh it requires uh you know in order to play this game um and some of the challenges are probably a, a little bit too difficult so not, some of them just a few of them aren't that intuitive, but once that you recognize mm. uh, certain patterns, and you'll be able to think as well as thrash your way over the lightsaber. Nice, nice. Um, I haven't played this game yet, so so I know you, you handle your lightsaber and all that. Do, do you get any other weaponry in the game? No, from... you play this oh, character. Okay. Yep. No, you. It's pretty. It's a hack and slash. Hack and uh, slash. You Yep. He plays this character called uh, Cal Kestis, yep. who is uh, on the run from uh, the just uh, 
uh, Empire. It takes place about, I think of it as, what, five years after Revenge of the Sith, oh, okay. after yeah. Order 66. Yeah. Um, so no uh, no other weapons other than that. Just, so the whole plot of the, the game is he, re he, re he unites and joins forces with um, another Jedi. Uh, and they found other children that uh, that can uh, help bring uh, restore a new order uh, within the Jedi. As you know, they would have been oh, yeah, depleted yeah, yeah. from uh, they would have been depleted badly after four, Order sixty six. Mm. So they go around uh, several world worlds to try and uh, find the clues to uh, find uh, this artifact to get them. But at the same time, they're attacked by the second and nine sisters, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Inquisitors, rather, which in a way it kind of feels rather similar to that um, Obi Wan Kenobi show, yeah. where you had the third sister, Reva, uh, right, yeah, yeah uh, who's uh, the main antagonist of, uh, uh, well, sort of the main antagonist for about two thirds of the show, um, yeah. And spoiler alert: spoiler alert, Darth Vader does appear in the game. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. that's that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, get so to, do you get to challenge him, or you just, you just... I'll say no more. Okay, all right. <laughs> I've I'm already yeah, yeah, my bad. Yep, say no more. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the game's yeah. three years old. If you haven't yeah, yeah. played yeah. it already, shame on you. But yeah, give it a shot. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, well, I'll you've got to get around to it. I've got, I do. I have a copy. Yeah. copy. Yeah, I do have a copy of it, and I haven't, so I haven't played it. So I have to really try and find some time to play it. So <laughs> I think your brother's already played it, though. Oh yeah, he's clocked it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've seen him play it and all, but yeah. I was I was just curious if he had any other weaponry upset, like you know, he had his lightsaber and Strictly all. Strictly lightsaber. Yeah, you can customize your lightsaber. I'll say this: customize it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So you can change your different colors, change your different materials, yeah. uh, and you can even customize uh, even your costume a little bit. Yeah. I mean, uh, just the uh, just the uh, superficial little things, but mm. yeah, it's just the uh, it. it you can so just you can make the gameplay just a little bit different. Sounds good, yeah. man. Nah, sounds cool. good. I'll definitely look into it. Definitely. Um, yeah, I've been I've been playing. Um, let's quickly while we get into the uh, main episode. Um, I've been playing Fear. Um, I played this game before, um, but didn't really invest in it. Um, till now, and uh, I've been playing it, and I tell you what, dude, it is a good game, man. Mm. Um, this game came out in two thousand and five, uh, probably the same time when Half Life Two came out. And, right. Um, yeah, and it's got that same quality of Half Life Two, man. Um, very eerie. Um, basically, the premise of the game is where um, you're part of this uh, SWAT team. And uh, this guy gets possessed by this uh, this evil girl. Um, right. And he gets possessed and all havoc just breaks loose. And uh, pretty much your... Oh, well, the objective of the game is to pretty much uh, versus this other SWAT team that he's pretty much like uh, possessed. So this guy has possessed this SWAT team and... You pretty much your objective is to kill these other SWAT team members, and and then like, then you get to see this girl pop out of nowhere, and she range like she just everything goes to slow mo, and then yeah, everything just catches on fire, and you have to like run away from her, oh, wow. and then it stops, and then you're pretty much in this other dark place, and pretty much have to like escape this like 
dark place where it's like, yeah, it's fantastic, man. I, I'll really, I'll really, I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, and uh, there's actually part one and two. Uh, sorry, there's part two and three as well, uh, which I will uh, eventually get to. But there's also expansion packs for, for this for the for part one as well. So it's got a lot of content, man, uh, which is awesome. But for now, man, I'm just slowly chipping away at it, and uh, hopefully, I'll I'll finish them all. You know, and cool. um, is it yeah. a supernatural horror game? Yeah, it's a survival horror. Yeah, so you know, uh, you know, you go to like these uh, facilities where they're like eerie and dark, and you hear all these ambient sound effects in the background that gives it that mood and that appeal, and it's it's awesome. You know, that's the type, cool. type of games I like. You know, I I don't mind survival horror games. You know, it, you know, it keeps you on edge, and that's what I like about gaming when it keeps you on edge and it keeps you you know focused and wanting more. You know, so it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me uh, a little from what the plot you described. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Control. I think I mentioned about Control. Yeah, uh, third-person yeah, yeah. shooter game. Yeah, yeah the third-person shooter game where you play somebody who is looking for her missing brother, mm. and she finds a uh, finds whereabouts in some uh, secret uh, government agency that is taken over by these supernatural entity beings that have uh, possessed all of these people on site. Yep. And the whole agency has to be locked down, and you are the only one who can try and, and save everyone and stop the, this uh, the entity from spreading outside into into the world. Um, mm. It probably I wouldn't. Say it's it has some horror elements into it, but I'd say it's more eccentric. Um, yeah. I, I won't go into great detail because it's a long story, and it can uh, it can be um, rather confusing to the uninitiated. But yeah. Um, from what you tell me about fear, uh, it's definitely, um, definitely, uh, it seems right up anyone's alley if uh, you've got a thirst for, uh, uh, ambient, uh, first person horror. Oh yeah. It's definitely up there, man. Um, so far I'm, I'm really enjoying this game. Um, I know it's old, but I'm really enjoying it and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll for, for anyone who is into first person shooters and survival horror games, I'll definitely recommend this game. So yeah, hands down. Oh, all right. Uh, so apart from that, um, yeah. So, but with no further ado, David, man, we, we had another special guest, didn't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yes, a very um, yeah, prominent uh, guest, I would say, by the name of Rebecca Heinemann. That's it. Yeah, Rebecca Heinemann. Um, yeah, we we had a chat with her. Um, when was it? Uh, the time of this recording uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, pretty much just uh, interviewing her and um, talking about her gaming career and uh, all the stuff that did she did in her gaming career and such, but. Other than that, uh, she was on an episode of High Score on Netflix, wasn't she, David? Yeah, she was. That was yeah. actually the first time. That was actually the first time I, I, I've heard of her, to be honest. Um, mm. When I was watching that uh, miniseries, and I spoke about uh, her competing in uh, the, the Atari Space Invaders Championship. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
and she won, uh, man, and she won. <laughs> did yeah. she won. amazing. I, I don't want to spoil and it, but yeah, she won. She won. Um, she got the highest score out of how many was it? How many contestants? Good question. I yeah, honestly yeah. can't. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca's gonna be like, "I told you guys." I'll check it. <laughs> No, anyway, but no, she got the highest score and um, she won, when was it? Two, uh, one plane ticket first class. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. To New York City and then she won the championship and she got like $200 or something and after that she uh, started working in the gaming industry, man, and uh, yeah. Had a pretty uh, impressive career, even mm, to this day. Did, yeah, before that, we in- before we introduce our listeners to the interview. That's right. Uh, did you want to go through the news bulletin? Yes, we will. And uh, just letting you guys know, um, um, yeah. Once we uh, announce these uh, announcements, um, yeah, we'll uh, begin the interview shortly. So yeah. So what do you got for us, David? Yeah. So. The Sega Genesis Mini 2 yes. yeah, has announced that its full games list. Finally. 61 titles have yep. been uh, confirmed for European and North American market. That's right. Yeah. So for the North American European market, it's got a lot of classics here. Uh, we won't go through all of them, but we'll go through the ones that are eye-catching. Yep. Um, so we've got Afterburner 2. Definitely played um, that. Yep. I, I remember playing that. It's a, yeah. Surprisingly, it was a rather short game. I remember. Yeah, you know what someone clock. told me once? You know what someone told me? It's more of a tech demo than a game. Do you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> I think... The showing, uh, off, yeah. the showing off the graphics and the compatibilities of the Mega Drive. I believe that uh, the game looks better in the original arcade form. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt uh, because yeah. I've seen, seen the arcade version and how... Uh, modern the sound chip is mm. the sounds rather, and the even the graphics uh, were more eye popping. I mean, it's okay for the uh, home uh, conversion, but yeah. it's one of those games that is uh, done justice at the arcade. Oh yeah, uh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yep. Um, after uh, yeah, after that, uh, yep. there's Alien Soldier. Alien Soldier. Now I remember. Yeah. I think I've mentioned this once on the podcast that it was just I could not play this game uh, for the fact that of its sheer difficulty. This game apparently is uh, known to be very difficult. Um, okay. Just uh, it's just typical futuristic or space uh, fantasy to the side scrolling. Yep. Um, but yeah, I could not beat the first boss, and uh, it looked great, but way too difficult for its own good. But who knows? Maybe that I'm older now. I'll have a much easier time playing it. Yeah. Um, you know what, man? You can enable the cheats and then you can fly right <laughs> through it. <laughs> you know what? I can't even remember if there were cheats for that game. Um, you know, yeah. with emulation now, you can just add you can add the cheats in there while you're, while you're yeah. playing. So yeah, you don't even have to, you know. Yeah. Input the Moving on. In. So we and also we, got yep. Clay 5 2. I don't know if you've ever... Play, play, yeah, play, I have played Clay. That, that was like yep. a um, like a semi-animated a game with yeah. like they're, they're 3D. Using I think animation. they'll, I think they're like semi-3D objects, but very sprightly. They weren't apparently they weren't 3D. They were using clay animation. Clay animation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it was like semi-3D anyway. So give me that illusion. I, think, that I remember. 
I remember my favorite character was uh, um, a snowman, a knockoff. Frosty yeah. snowman from <laughs> knockoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, it was a weird game. Um, oh, yeah. I think, uh, would you say it was a cult following? Because I don't think that many people really talk about it. Um, I know it's very collectible now, um, especially if the one on um, N64. I think it's called Clay Fighter's Sculptures Cut. And it's pretty, right. it's pretty rare and expensive now. So, yeah, anyone who's got that in their collection, yeah, man, you guys are very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Other games include, yep. uh, as well as a Fatal Fury 2. Yep, definitely. Uh, I remember playing that. Yep. Uh, rented it for about two weeks. Thought it was a yeah, great game. Uh, a massive improvement to Fatal Fury 1, which wasn't necessarily a terrible, terrible yep. game, yep. but... It had limited characters to play with because he only could oh, yeah, play yeah. the Bogart brothers yep. and the kickboxer, who I think, yep. don't quote me on it, I think his name was Adam. Um, whereas in, um, in Fatal Fury 2, you had mm. at least a dozen characters to play with, which yeah, was great. Right, yeah. Now, did you ever get, um, did you ever look back on those Fatal Fury games? Um, I've. I've... Oh, I was. I think I played. I played one of them a couple of years ago, but not on the not on the Mega Drive. I'm actually on the Neo Geo, where it was originally released. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I found it. I found it pretty stiff, though. When I when I, when I played, I thought uh, I probably have to get used to this now, you know. But I found it was alright, you know, for its time. Yeah. It was alright, you know. Um. It's. But I haven't played it recently, now, So, but I'll definitely remember playing it. Um. You can tell. Yeah. It, what distinguishes it from Street Fighter is yeah. that you can jump around the foreground. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. In sync right. with the foreground. Um, yeah. yeah. Got, Just want to correct myself yeah. that the uh, uh, the other kickboxer was actually, his name was Joe. Oh, Joe. Joe. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I can't remember the characters. Anyway. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even remember. So I, I remember Terry Bogard yeah. with his... Yeah. Uh, Iconic uh, burning knuckle yeah. move back in the day. Oh, yeah. And also watched the anime, anime movie accompanied mm. with that. Yeah. So that's uh, good to see that Final Fury 2 has made the list. Yep. Uh, just go through rather quickly other games here that we've got. Um, Earthworm Jim Sonic 2. 3D Blast. Sonic 3D Blast is uh, oh, yeah. been added to the list. Um, so I remember playing it once. Um, and it didn't, I mean, it looked great. But I could never get used to playing it because of the fact that it was sort of isometric. Isometric, yeah. Um, yep. Very difficult to get used to. And if you played Sonic games uh, all, all your life back in those days, mm. um, you, you only get used to playing in a side-scrolling 2D platform. That's right. Uh, but good to see that that game has uh, made the list. Streets of Rage 3 has made the list. Oh, yeah. Very, very hard game, man. Very hard game. I'm not very hard. Still my favorite. Hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, still my favorite, but yes, it's very difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, Super Hang On. Yep. As well. Just so another classic game. Yeah. I remember one of the first few games that I owned when I first got my Mega Drive back yep. in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Super Street Fighter 2, the new challenges. So this would have been the game that has all the other characters, including um, yep. Kami and Akuma. Kami and Akuma. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah. Um... Yeah. So we look here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that pretty much, yeah, they'll, 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 there were additional fighters for this game. I do I remember very well. Um, 
was trying to trying to remember which um I know there was a Jamaican I, boxing dude boxing guy. I've got DJ. his name. DJ, that's right, DJ. DJ. I, I used to use him <laughs> from time to time. And that and that Mexican dude with the with the Tomahawk. With claws. Tomahawk, yep. Yeah. Well yep. if he's abbreviated his name to T Hawk, I think T-Hawk. they couldn't fit his name <laughs> yeah. um on the energy bar, but yeah. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, no, that's the best street version of Street Fighter Two by far. Would you say so? Oh yeah, because you got more variety. You know what I mean. It makes it more interesting. You know what I mean. And you know, if he only stuck to like six characters, there's no, you know, you're gonna get bored pretty quick. You know what I mean. So absolutely. Anyway, moving yeah. on. So we've got uh, Revenge of the Shinobi, another oh, classic yeah. that has made classic the list. and a hard game as well. Yeah, um, um, Earthworm Jim Echo- Two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Earthworm Jim was always a difficult game, because <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, you're. I think you played it recently and uh, you found it hard. When I used to play it, I, I couldn't get past the, the the junkyard stage. So yeah, yeah, you know, I couldn't get past the underwater stage where you're oh. riding on the um, um, you're riding on some sort of. Uh, not an aircraft. It was sort of a a, a ship, a little ship. But uh, the glass was very delicate, and it's very easy to just collide uh, okay. against all the walls and the, the roof. I, I may have mentioned it once on one of our games that kicked us through the moon episodes. Oh, yep, yep, um, yeah, you definitely uh, said that. Yeah, you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, right. Yeah, mm. not need to go through that uh, turmoil again. <laughs> Frustrating game. <laughs> no, yeah. Echo, Echo the Dolphin. Um, Echo the Dolphin. Unique game I remember playing back in the day. Yeah. Um, didn't really understand how to play. And, uh, these ones are for the Sega CD. So not only yeah. we get the the normal Mega Drive games, we also get the Sega. We've got additional Sega CD games as well that they've chucked in. Uh, Such as well, Sonic so. CD. Yeah, yeah Sonic, Sonic CD, CD has yeah. made the list. I played Sonic a little bit of Sonic CD. Well. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. yeah. Sonic CD is a little bit like your typical um, Sonic uh, game on yeah. 16-bit. Uh, console, right. but with better graph, slightly better graphics and better sound effects. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you, you, and, you'll have a like say, I think it's CD book audio. Yeah, um, they call it a red, a red CD book audio, which I put like yeah, proper music in there and stuff like that, instead of like the ones from the um, Mega Drive, the, the normal the soundtrack for yep. Mega Drive. So yeah. Yep, that's right. And we also get the infamous, we also got the infamous night trap on here as well. <laughs> the game the that was one of the big, most controversial games of the that's early right, 90s. Man. That's right. That um, that's had right. a yeah a, a congress in America. That's what that's what made yeah. Sega put those uh parentally uh yeah guy stickers on the games. Yep, parentally. Congress in America just uh, forced Sega and Nintendo to work out how to create a classification board system yeah. for video games. Yeah. That's right. Um, but yeah, right, just uh, quickly, anyway, yeah. quickly moving on yep. to our next yep. and final yep. story. Yep. Yep. So following the success of the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, Sega's announced that they'll be developing a, a couple more movies for different franchises, Space Channel 5 and Comics Zone. Right. Yeah, and that will be interesting. I remember hearing that they wanted to adapt Streets of Rage uh, a while ago oh, as well, yeah, which not... looked pretty interesting. 
Yeah, I, I hope they really. I hope they really pull these ones off because in the past, man, we had some really crappy video game imitations, man, and I just like Street they, Fighter. Yeah, like Street Fighter, Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed, um, Doom the movie yeah. that was atrocious, man. Um, yeah, man, if they can really Super pull Mario this off, Brothers. <laughs> that, that, it wasn't even Super Mario Brothers. Man. I don't know what the hell that was. So. <laughs> I remember I, had the action figure. I bought the action figure Bob Hoskins as oh, Super Mario. Geez. Yeah, back in the night. I think I still yeah. have it somewhere. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just didn't understand. Did not understand uh, how. I think it was Dennis Hopper played Cooper, but looked uh, nothing like Cooper. Know, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm more curious. I don't know much about. Space Channel 5, other than it's a dance game. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure how you can make a, a movie based on that concept. But I know I've played Comic Zone. We talked about it a little bit in the podcast. Uh, it's going to be in- interesting uh, how that's adapted into a film. Because if you remember the game, that it was rather y- unique in a sense of how it could scroll across the page. So you're actually moving between one comic panel to another. And you yeah, got that's right. yeah, ultimate, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You got, you got, yeah. yeah you got little, um, uh, what do you call? It? You got all these little comic book strips, and he just moves from one to that's the other. Right. And yeah, that was a pretty cool concept for its time. Um, yeah, I don't know how they're gonna pull this off in the movie, you know. Uh, but you know, they might surprise us and pull it off. I don't know. But in terms of uh, this announcement, is it in post production? What's the story with it? I think it's, no, it's definitely not post-production because not, no one's been no, cast. No one's no one been or, casted, yes. Yeah, so no, no, it's just in development, which in they're development. probably okay. working out scripts for it. Scripts, yeah. Uh, but it depends if how far they get f- further ahead because mm. in Hollywood, how it works is they can announce something uh, today, but tomorrow they say, oh, it's cancelled because the script wasn't up to par or they just couldn't come up with a draft. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, man. We'll have to wait and see, I guess, you know. This yeah, is but really um, early stages right did, now, so. For Comic Zone, they did come up with a summary of what they envisioned the movie to be. Yep. Uh, it says it follows a jaded comic book creator and a young queer writer of color who, when sucked mm. into the final issue of his popular series, must put aside the differences to stop a dangerous supervillain from sowing complete destruction. In the process, they willingly explore the ever-evolving art of storytelling itself. So judging by the, this um, summary here, or this premise rather, it sounds like that it's going to be a rather quirky movie, yep. uh, which probably I can imagine it being something as quirky as uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which had a, a few little video game uh, gimmicks yep. into the movie. Like I remember the main character head butted uh, one uh, boss like character and yeah. they evaporated into uh, sonic like rings with the uh, with the ring chime in the background, if I remember correctly. So I'll probably do something as quirky like that. Um, other than that, um, yeah, it's definitely a, it might be a bit of a niche audience. Um, because it just depends on just if they make it too quirky, um, which seems to be the rage uh, in uh, a lot of action comedies nowadays, isn't it? Oh yeah, like especially the um, the Marvel movies, they're getting very uh, yeah quirky and comical, and you know, all right, it's good to add some comedy elements, but when it gets too goofy, man, it's like 
Am I watching a comedy or am I watching a superhero movie? You know what I mean? It's like or an action what are we movie, yeah. Or action movie, that's right. Yeah. You know, but you know, it's the way it is now, man. We just have to adapt to it. But pff, I'd have to adapt to it. You know, I'll just choose not to watch it or not. That's it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So, that's right. No, I'll be thinking, yeah. uh, the Truth of Rage. Uh, that would be very interesting. Oh <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, Apparently, um, director from John Wick is going to be directing this movie. Streets of Rage. Streets of Rage. Yeah. Wow. Yep. If it's live, I'll be amazed if it's live action. But if he's going to be doing it, Chad Strahelsi. Yeah. Excuse me, Chad Strahelsi. The name, yeah. Yeah, name I think that's his name. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, oh, yeah, it'll definitely be live action for sure, man. Yeah, if he's doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. I think that wraps up our news bulletin. I think it's time to get our interview started. That's right, man. So we had this uh, pre recorded. So um, with no further ado, may I present Ms. Mrs. Uh, Rebecca Heidemann. All right. Catch you guys later. David, man, looks like we've got another special guest once again. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. At the time of recording, it's Sunday morning yep. here in Melbourne. Yeah. That's and right. uh, yeah, it's a good way to uh, continue on with the rest of the weekend. That's right. And uh, she goes by the name of Mrs. Uh, Rebecca Heidemann. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. And for me, I'm since I'm in uh, Dallas, Texas, it's, just, it's still Saturday here. So <laughs> you're in the future. The future. <laughs> that's right. Back to the future. <laughs> there we go. I'm back to the future. I'm the one that's back. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Going back. Yeah. Yeah, um, indeed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, Re- Rebecca, how are you, by the way? We, I'm, uh... I'm doing quite well. Just another wonderful day here in Dallas, Texas, and busy trying to final some games to get them out there in, in the e-stores. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And how's the weather like over there? All good? Hot. Freaking hot. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, just basically park yourself in the middle of the outback and let the sun roost you. That's uh... what it's like out here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, at this point in time, right here, Melbourne, it's pretty uh, dark and gloomy. Very cold weather. Since we are in the, the mm. south of the country, that's true. It's winter for you. It's summer for me. And unfortunately, yep. that's uh, around a hundred and two, hundred and three Fahrenheit. So I think it's around forty degrees uh, by the way you measure it, and then that's freaking hot. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right, so Rebecca, if you're ready, if you're ready, we can uh, start the episode, and um, I'll give you uh, uh, my first Let's half of que- my questionnaire, and then my co-host David will uh, give you the rest, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Okay, so uh, what was your first exposure to a video game? Uh, well, my first exposure to a video game would have to be the classic Pong. Um, by seeing it, and uh, I remember seeing it like at the Veterans of Foreign Wars, a place that my dad uh, occasionally goes to, and they had a pong machine in their bar. And it was like, okay, then you put a quarter in, you play pong, and of course, back then in 1975, 76, somewhere around there, give or take in those years, it was the most amazing thing. You know, this uh, a television with these lines on there, and it actually can bounce a ball around there. It's like incredible. Um, so that was my first exposure to video games. Um, then later on, it was like Space War, and then uh, Asteroids, and things like that. All those 
very, very classic set late seventies arcade games. And that, and that, and that, and those games were at its peak, and then later on it just exploded. And, uh, well, it was oh yeah, because uh, back then it was just, they were just so new. I um, mean, there was yeah. nothing you never seen anything like that before because oh. you know in the um, arcades, if you can call it that, uh, back then, um, the way you paid money was like you play foosball uh you know the big uh football tables which you know we call soccer here in the united states but uh back then it's just football and you move, put a quarter in it let the ball move around or the uh air hockey where you have the table and you use the puck to knock the puck around um those are the things you put a quarter in not into a television set that's right yeah. <laughs> that was a truly the golden age of video games being born during that time. Oh yeah, I mean it, it's just funny seeing how over the years um, what encompasses video game entertainment has evolved. I mean back then first you had the mechanical devices, then came Pong and then the early 8-bit arcade machines um, and then afterwards became the more um, it visually intense um, arcade machines like Street Fighter and so forth. Then it went full 3D. But then, you know, nowadays, today, those machines are so quaint. So they have to have these big, like, um, VR setups. Or, like I saw recently, a video, a, a Dunn, sorry, um, David Buster's, they have this gigantic Pac Man machine, which you go in there and the screen is, I'm not kidding, at least four meters tall. And, so, and then you're playing Space Invaders. It's just like, you know, okay. You know, it's because you're trying to make an experience you just can't duplicate at home. Because nowadays with modern technology, um, any arcade video game that was made in the last 10 years, you could just duplicate perfectly at home. But so that's why they have to do experiences now in um, arcades today. Yeah, tell me about, uh, you can definitely say that again, about the duplicating. Uh, the old school games at home because <laughs> during my downtime at work, uh, I work in sort of uh, front end development, and uh, what I've been doing is just uh, recreating uh, Space Invaders and Pac Man just for fun through uh, online tutorials using Canvas API. And I'm just looking back at these games that had sort of, you know, became more of a um, just icons of video game history. And it's just amazing now, just over the years, that any sort of developers just interested in coding or just uh, taking interest in game development, they can replicate that uh, with some ease. Of course, there's some sort of learning curve that goes along with it, but for example, uh, if you can use, you can type in a JavaScript a switch statement to uh, map out the, the grid for Pac-Man and recreate Pac-Man character and splice his mouth as he moves along that, and create all the uh, power-ups and all the ghosts and then change uh, uh, change them to blue once you pick the power up. It's just, uh, I mean, you look back, you look at how in the beginning, you'd imagine it would be amazing that uh, years later that you could be introduced as a tutorial, as sort of a gateway for game development. Yeah, I mean, also, um, to put it in perspective, like your JavaScript version of Pac Man probably occupies anywhere from 40 to 60K of HTML and JavaScript. Um, that's eight times larger than the ROM they used to make the original game. 
Because the whole game back in, you know, 1977, 78, I don't remember the exact year Pac-Man was invented, so I'm probably incorrect. Um, but the it was written in Z80 assembly, um, and the entire game occupied only 8K. Um, mm. So, I mean, they did have, there was a character ROM, and then there was a sound ROM. I'm trying to remember exactly how it was done. But, like, the sound ROM was only, like, maybe, okay, 1,000 bytes, and then the video ROM was, like, 2K, maybe 4K at most, and then all the code, every bit of code, which included the logic for the maze and the logic for running around and everything that has to do with the game, 8,000 bytes. So nice. big, you know, it's big difference because like right now for us is like just opening a text file and, and saving it as an empty file is something like a couple of K in size because of all the formatting stuff we're Back then, every byte counted. Yeah. Very funny you mentioned about um, the file size for when the original ROM was built, because as far as I can remember, because when I did a compressed zip file on the working files for my little projects, I realized it was probably around, around a couple hundred K. And that's because we're using a lot of PNG images that weren't even compressed. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a difference. It's just amazing just how the size of the data and just the bytes you use to um, replicate some of these games just grow in size compared to the first time. Oh yeah, I mean like the emulators like MAME, um, if you're emulating anything from uh, the beginning of the gaming time to around 2000, MAME's probably a lot larger in file size than the game. Mm. <laughs> And also, the, yeah, the games itself, the main files are always bigger, uh, significantly bigger than you might get for, let's say, a 16-bit or a, definitely an 8-bit game. Mm -hmm. Well, remember, it's like, uh, example, the Atari 2600. The average game at the beginning of when they started releasing games was 2K. So the entire mm. game was 2,048 bytes, like Combat. That cartridge was 2,048 bytes. Then when they did Space Invaders, that was a 4K cartridge, 4,096 bytes for the whole thing. Um, wow. in the Atari 2600. It wasn't until later in the 2600 years when they started implementing bank switching to give cartridges that were larger than 4K. But a vast majority of games on the 2600 was 4K or smaller. Um, and right now, again, it's like an MP3 file of your favorite song is three megabytes. Um, that would hold something like, what is it, like a thousand games or something like that? Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. Alright, my next question. Um, while doing some research, you used to make your own Atari games. While we are talking about Atari games on that topic, so... Yeah. Uh, what, what was the experience like for you? What had happened was that I was, you know, flat broke at the time. I mean, I was... 13, 14 years old, and come from a family that really had that didn't have that much money. I mean, we had a house and stuff, but that was about it. Um, so anything Atari related or Apple related, whatever, that was a complete and utter luxury. Um, so in most cases, we didn't have that. So what happens because I wanted to collect the video games, but I couldn't afford to, um, I was able to acquire an Apple II at a reduced price and was able to use it to develop a cool cartridge, a card for my Apple II that I plugged in when I 
bought all the parts from Radio Shack, because that was at a time when you can buy chips and sockets and stuff from Radio Shack. Use a wire wrap tool to wire up all the components. And I made a, car a card that allowed me to plug a Atari cartridge in, has a cable, and was able to download the card. And then later on, I had a different card, which what it is, you took the, the code, just copied it into this card, this Apple II card's memory, had a cable which plugs into an Atari 2600, and it plays the game. Uh, we know these today as ROM emulators, but this is something that I had to figure it out because ROM emulators were essentially only sold to military companies, because why would anybody want a ROM emulator? Um, but because the code was 6502, and the Apple II has a 6502 disassembler built into it, it was easy for me to look at the code of the Atari 2600 cartridges I was pirating, and notice I can read the code. So my curiosity took over, and through trial and error, like I would take a game like uh, Combat and an air-sea battle, etc., and I would modify it and say, load A with some number to this register. Okay, just change that one number and see what happens. Change another number, and then of course I would find, oh, if you store in this value, it's a color. And then by cycling through all the colors, I could make a map of what the colors were. Then I would find this register does sound. If I change these things, I can write sound. And in time, with lots of iterations, after a couple of months of really intense work, I was able to map out exactly how to program an Atari 2600. And that's what helped parlay me my first uh, programming job. Wow, that is awesome. Um, third question is, um, in 1980, you and a friend competed in the Atari National Space Invaders Championship in Los Angeles. And once again, what was that experience like for you? Surreal. And that's really the best way to describe it, because my whole take on it was that I, because of my destroyed self-esteem at the time, um, was that I never thought I was even good enough to even be worthy to be among these other players, because I just assumed that they were far better than me, because uh, when I played Space Invaders, it was just so easy for me. It was just so natural for me. So um, I just assumed that this is an easy game, so therefore other people should find this easier than I do, because I thought I was a bad player. My friend believed in me and convinced me to go with him to um, the Topanga Canyon Plaza, which is like an hour drive from where we lived, because remember, just because it's a regional champion, LA is a huge, huge city. Um, so, yeah, because the Topanga Canyon is on the west side of Los Angeles, and I lived on the east side. And we're talking about a city whose diameter is like about 40 miles. So, there you go. But, once we I went there, I saw the, the contest, and it really was just like, um, they had a couple of these kiosks with Atari 2600s. There were some uh, people watching them, you know, judges to make sure no one was cheating. They had it all roped off. And then they had this little area where you just simply bought a ticket for a dollar. And the ticket, the money went to charity. I can't recall whether it was like a children's hospital or whatever it was, but the money was supposed to go to charity. You get a ticket, get in line. And then when it's your turn, you wait until one of the judges says, I'm free. And then you go up to the judge, you give him your ticket, who then he just takes it. And then says, here you go. And you start playing the game. And then he just stands there while you play. And after I got like 88,000 points and the aliens finally landed on me, my first reaction was, is that good? <laughs> um, and he goes like, um, I don't know. And it was after that, walked away, and they then 
eventually put up my score. The Atari asked me to hold the score for a while because they were afraid it was going to scare people off, which I thought was a joke by them or something. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that my score could possibly be as, um, as good as they were um, implying it was to be. So, therefore, um... Oh, good, my throat's finally clearing up. Ugh. Um, yeah, I had some problems with my throat a couple weeks ago, and every now and then my throat goes weird on me. But anyways, that's the side. Um, what happens then is that, um, I stood around, and then eventually they announced the winners, and then that's when they put my score back up. And I ended up becoming the first place winner. And of course, once they told me I was the winner, I was like, I won? Really? How? And of course, they gave me uh, like a check for I think it was like $150, but I don't even remember specific those specific thing. But I just remember that they then took my name, address, my mom's phone number, blah blah blah, and then finally we left. And then two weeks later, I already forgot about the whole contest and everything um, because I thought, okay, great, I got some money to spend. Cool, um, you know, bought an Apple to just drive with the money. Um, but I then um, I got home and. About two weeks later was when I got this letter from Atari that contained my plane ticket and the itinerary for the event. And that's really when it became real to me. So, <laughs> you know, that, oh, I, I got to go to New York City in a few days. And because, you know, the the, um, the date for the LA Regional is like the middle of October. And the event for the finals is November 8th. So it was only three weeks apart. So... The day of the final, you know, day of the regionals, two weeks later, I get the letter. Then a week later, I'm on a plane to New York City by myself. That's awesome. Um, do you remember how many people you competed with back then? Well, in Los Angeles, I understood that there was like 40,000 people. Wow. Uh, this is the number I was told Atari, and I saw newspaper clippings, so that's where I get the number from. Because, you know, you see this place, you get all this swarm of people. Who has time to count? Um, but uh, Atari said like 40,000 people competed, um, and I was a high score among them. And then when I went to New York, I only played against the other four contestants, so it was five of us. Now, I do know that the other contests, they either had 20, 25, thousand people per contest with new york being the biggest it had some like almost a hundred thousand people competing um so technically um if you add them all up by it was better than somewhere around two hundred thousand contestants well, that, that, did everyone get the sorry drop left sorry that's all right yeah, yeah, everyone yeah, get, yeah did everyone get the red carpet treatment in the competition? Because it sounds like that everyone was sort of after in order to compete in the beginning. Well, we only got the red carpet treatment when we were doing the finals. Right. Uh, what happened? Yeah, because when you're at the regionals, it's just like, you know, a regional contest in which they just they have the kiosk. You just go buy a ticket, get in line with all the other people. It looks just like Disneyland or something, you know, the long, long queue. You sit there with your ticket. You just go, ooh, 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 and at least the line moved really quickly. But then until, until it's your turn, then you show your ticket, and they said, okay, uh, booth five, or in this case, they just simply pointed to a guy. It says, okay, go to that booth, and the guy says, okay, come here, give me your ticket, give me your name, write it down, okay, here's the game, here's your controller, good luck. And then after that, you know, they expect you to die in like 30 seconds to a minute. 
um, which I didn't, uh, but most people did. And at that point, they would then pull out a sheet which says, congratulations, you've competed. They write down your score and they hand it to you and then they show you the exit. <laughs> so now, unfortunately for me, I've since lost that paper that they gave me that said 88,000 points on it because it's like one of those, you know, as soon as I got home, I had the paper and it was tossed into trash like, you know, my score sucks. And who cares? I can get 88,000 points on this game in my sleep. So what's so special about this score? That was my thought about it. So it wasn't until it was at the finals when I realized that, oh, this is actually important. <laughs> so, yeah, because, you know, I fly there, I land, um, I go through baggage claim, I then see this guy with a sign that says Heinemann and, of course, has the Atari logo on it. And, of course, you know, he's dressed up in a nice um, suit with a... Because uh, he's, you know, a limousine driver. They take me to this car, which is a limousine. They then um, take me to the hotel where they then say, okay, here's your hotel room, blah, blah, blah. We'll come by to pick you up. Then later on, they a guy comes to my door, knocks, takes me down to the restaurant with the other contestants where we have our first meal together, which is when, for the first time, Atari realizes to their horror that um, I don't have an adult with me. And I am wow. not 18. Not even close. And uh, because, you see, the other contestants um, each had a parent with them. And even though Atari paid the ticket for the kid, the parents had enough money to send, you know, basically buy a ticket for themselves and fly in. I come from a divorced family and we're freaking broke. There was no way in heck that we could have possibly paid for a ticket for my mother. And so therefore I went by myself. And Atari was like going, okay, she's a lawsuit waiting to happen. If anything happens to her, her parents could sue us into the ground. Um, which is why, you know, the thing of, you know, all expense paid trip for two is always there whenever there's a contest in which it's possible the minor can win. <laughs> Gotta say, that's an embarrassing oversight on Atari's part that didn't consider that about, uh, yeah, people from divorced households thinking, hmm, okay, we didn't really expect that. Uh, yeah, but, no. that's the big problem about being the very first of anything. Because you're mm. the first, you don't think of these things. For some reason, Atari believed that the demographic of the Atari 2600 was 18 to 35 year olds. Right. They did not know that a majority of players were essentially 10 years old to 18. You know, still in school. Yeah. And from what I remember, I think of all the contestants, only one of them was 18 or over. Because uh, I know the guy from Dallas, he was like 14. Um, I think Steve Marmel from Chicago was 16. Um, I'm not sure Hing Ning. I think Hing Ning may have been 17, but I think he was so close to 18, it's like close enough. But I know Frank Tetro from New York, I believe he was already 18. But that was the ages, but you know, between uh, 14 and 18 was all the contestants. And um, the people at Atari thought it was just going to be, oh, no, they're all going to be like uh, college students or something like that. Oops. <laughs> uh, well, thankfully, you were allowed to uh, participate in the finals, nonetheless. 
still, I guess maybe it was the time. I guess maybe that probably divorces probably wasn't really uh, in the public conscious as much at the time as it probably is now. So probably that's why that in their minds that they probably didn't think uh, to add in the disclaimer no, to people. In the 70s, divorce was quite common. But mm. the thing it goes back to is that they just assumed that the people who bought Atari 2600s were people who were middle class or higher in which that they, because um, to put it in perspective, an Atari 2600 cost around 250 to 300 dollars in 1980 dollars, and right. that's the equivalent of like 500 dollars today uh, yeah. or more. Um, so you know, they would think that, oh, well, if you could afford Atari 2600, you could afford a plane ticket. Um, but the real problem was that they just assumed that everybody was going to be an adult and therein is their fault because yeah. since they didn't assume everybody was going to be in it because they assumed everybody was going to be adult it never occurred to them that the person coming in would be a minor and then at least they could have made a special rule saying that if the winner was a minor we'd also pay for their parent or guardian um it just didn't occur to them and I'd say that's pretty disastrous that it didn't occur to them because, yeah, like you said, they could have been liable for a lawsuit. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, thankfully, nothing happened. I mean, I, I'm i already kind of an independent woman, so I already knew how to get around and take care of myself. So, you know, even though that the people of Atari were like, okay, have somebody guard this person because uh, if anything happens to her, you know, we don't want to get our, our butts sued. And you know they were owned by Warner Brothers, you know Time Warner. So therefore, they had really, really deep pockets. If let's say I fell down the stairs or something like that. Um, so, but nothing happened. They got me on the plane. As soon as I was on the plane and flew back, then I wasn't their problem anymore. Awesome. Okay. Um, next question. Um, so after winning the Space Invaders Championship, you went to work for Electronic Games Magazine. What was that like? It was uh, surreal because, you see, again, as a high school dropout, uh, my English skills were not as good as they should have been. You see, Spanish is my primary language, not English. Okay. Uh, but when I was at the after party of the Space Invaders tournament, I met up with the publishers of Electronic Games Magazine. That would be Arnie Katz, Bill Kunkel, Joyce Worley. And the three of them came and approached me and said, hey, would you like to write articles for Electronic Games Magazine? I didn't even know anything about writing articles for anything, but I said, sure, why not? Because I'm already in, I'm already in over my head, so why not drown myself even further? <laughs> um, so I, I said, sure. And because their idea was, if I was already a video game champion, then obviously I know how to beat all the video games. They were actually kind of correct. I mean, I, I did score high scores on all the video games that I ever played at the time. Um, but of course, um, you know, that was the assumption. So when I flew back to um, Los Angeles to be, you know, with my mom, um, I then started getting letters from Electronic Games Magazine and I started realizing, okay, I got to get a typewriter. I got to type these articles. I got to type all this stuff. Then I got to mail it in. I mean, fax machines were just starting to come around. But of course, back then they were like $1,000. So I went through a lot of US stamps 
and lots of uh, paper and ink rolls for my uh, typewriter. But uh, that's essentially how it started. Now, later on, there was uh, a company, Del Rey, who wanted to publish a book called How to Beat the Video Games. And because they knew that I wasn't really set up to write a full-length novel, um, they hired a ghostwriter to actually write it. And then I would be saying, this is how you do this, this is how you do that, this is how you do this, etc. So I would tell him what to write, and then he would actually put it down the paper and send it off to... Uh, uh, the books and then after the book sold so well we did another one called uh how to beat the home video games um and those are published i mean you can find them on ebay for like a couple bucks um but uh yeah you know, i'm in the acknowledgments of course the books are saying by tom hirschfold i think his name was um but uh in the back it says my name is an acknowledgement because legally that's all they could do because i was still a freaking minor at the time <laughs> Awesome. And how long did you work for Electronics Games Magazine? Shortly after when About two years. two years. About two okay. years. Then I had to step aside, and then Frank Tetro took that column for until the magazine passed away around 83, 84. Awesome. Uh, so my last question is, uh, after working with various gaming companies, you co-founded your own gaming company, Interplay Productions, and how did that all come together? Well, that one was one where it was all a, a it was an accident, shall we say. Um, after leaving the East Coast, you know, I worked for first Avalon Hill Game Company, then I worked for Time Warner doing a play cable system. Uh, this was actually, I was working technically for HBO. I wasn't working for Time Warner, but that's our parent company. Um, but when the project was canceled, um, I'm like, and they let everybody go. I then flew back to LA and asked a friend of mine, if, any, if he knew anybody was hiring, you told me this company called Boom Corporation was hiring programmers. Especially people who knew the 2600, because their job was to take a bunch of these KTEL Zonix games that were written for the Atari 2600 and convert them to run on the VIC-20 and then the Commodore 64. So since I already knew the Atari 2600, they basically hired me as soon as, as, soon as I walk in the door, I answer a couple questions. Okay, here's your desk, start working. I mean, I literally was working the very day I entered the door. Um, but in time, Mike Boone, the owner of Boone Corporation, decided he just didn't want to do a video game company anymore. He wanted to sell lolly or sorry, popsicles at the swap meet. And then later on, he sold Boon Boards, which was a million-dollar ID, which made him very wealthy. So, kudos to him. But what happened with him was that because he let us all go, we all sat around the table going like, well, we're canned. What are we going to do? And we all look at each other because that was Jay, Troy, Brian. We're all sitting around the table. A couple others were too, but you know, we were the core. And we were like, well, um, what are we going to do? And it's, why don't we just make our own video game company? We already have everybody here. So, okay, and that was Interplay. There was no real, no real fancy like forethought or anything. It's just like, okay, we're all fired. What are we gonna do? Form our own company? Sure, why not? And that's how Interplay was formed. <laughs> that's awesome. And what, what, what and what games were you uh, designing in, in that in that company um, back then? Okay, when you started um, the company. I had a thing for the old Sierra Online graphic text adventure games like Wizard and the Princess, Mission Asteroid, etc. And I wanted to do it better. And that was what led to the creation of our first two original titles, Mind Shadow and Tracer Sanction. Both games were intended to be our answer to the Sierra Online graphic text adventures. 
and we then did a publishing deal with Activision um, in which they were going to publish them and we were just going to churn out the games as much as possible and hopefully um, eke good living out of that. Um, and so we shipped those two games. Um, there was even a character we created called Condor whose job was supposed to be a hint master. So we're supposed to have this like, um, this is our version of Stan Lee, a character who's in every single game. And what they do is they give you hints in the event you get stuck. Um, of course, this is before um, hint books were a thing because, you know, once hint books came around, you know Condor is going to be fired immediately and say, oh, you're stuck in my shadow? Buy the Brady, Brady hint book. Um, but that wasn't the thing back then. Um, the game sold well, um, but, and it was enough that they wanted us to do a new game, um, which then we said, okay, we'll do one, uh, and which is going to be a hard-boiled detective one set in the 1930s, and we call it Borrowed Time. Um, but the difference was is that we now started gra seeing graphic adventure games start moving into point-and-click, so we did that too. Um, Borrowed Time was the first game we had which had point-and-click. Now, but just so you know, both My Shadow Transaction actually did have some point-and-click in there. Like if you clicked on items on the map, it would actually type in the words for you. But Borrowed Time actually had a user interface that you could actually play the entire game by just point-and-clicking. Um, it sold really well. And that's when um, Activision said, hey, you know, can you do another game? Um, and we came up with the idea of like, uh, I think the, the pitch idea was the game's the closest thing to a drug trip without actually taking drugs. And that became Task Times in Tone Town. And uh, it was a wild romp. But the problem was after Task Times in Tone Town came out, the market for those type of video games kind of was passing away. And Interplay, we really started wanting to go back to our roots because we really liked RPGs, role-playing games. So then that's when we started shifting to doing things like Bard's Tale, uh, Wasteland, etc. So the graphic text adventure games just went by the wayside and we went into RPGs. And a lot of Interplay games are RPGs. <laughs> and talking about Bard's Tale, um, I was actually uh, just trying to remember that when I had my 386, I think I had that game on my 386. You probably the, did. I probably did, yeah. Because I remember a whole folder full of DOS games, and I remember this RPG-ish, like, three-dimensional um, adventure game, and um, and it just rang a bell by just looking at it recently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that is awesome. All right, that's that's it from me. Um, David, would you like to continue on? <clears throat> yeah, sure. So, Rebecca, I just uh, got a... Not a several questions to ask and I'll just start with the first one here um, so while I was uh, finding it looking up in your uh, background uh, in uh, in the industry uh, aside from uh, co-founding Interplay uh, you're also credited for co-founding a couple of other companies Logicware and Contraband Entertainment um, what can you tell us about your experience with those companies well um, I was with Interplay for 11 and a half years Right. But um, it's just one where Interplay went in one direction and I really, it became big and corporate and mm -hmm. too many decisions were being made for the wrong reasons and so forth. So it was just time for me to move on. And what had happened was that thankfully I'd already gotten a bunch of money from the sale of some Interplay stock I had because, you know, being a founder, you have a lot of stock. Um, so I sold a bunch of stock and with it, I had the seed money to create 
my own video game company. And when I left Interplay, several employees just said, I'm quitting, I'm going to go with Becky. Um, and we then formed Logicware with a business partner uh, because at the time I was like a good programmer and so forth, but I wasn't a businesswoman. I didn't really know how to do that part. And that's why I had a business partner who came in and that person took care of like the, the CEO responsibility, doing the, getting the contracts, getting everything signed, contacting all of our publishers, blah, 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 where I just got to sit in the corner and just code, which is what I did best. And then we did some original titles like Astro Rock, Defiance, um, and um, a bunch of ports for the Mac. And we started our Mac publishing business where Logicware in 97 and later, we published games like Jazz Jack Rabbit 2, Shattered Steel, um, Tempest 2000, under the Logicware brand boxes and everything. Um, but around 1999, I had a falling out with my business partner. And with that, we then had him removed. But to do that, you had to dissolve the old company and form a new one, which is where Contraband came from. And Contraband, we did things, we did a bunch of stuff with uh, Mac Play. So we still did a bunch of Mac ports, but we also did, um, what was it called? Um, Heroes of Might and Magic 4. We did the Activision Anthology, which is the Atari 2600 collection. Um, we did uh, Monster Hunter, uh, which is not related to the Capcom game. We actually had the name Monster Hunter. In fact, Capcom, I signed a contract with Capcom renting out the name so that they're using it based on my game. <laughs> so there, um, but you know, there's no relation. The Monster Hunter is the old classic um, universal monsters and you're Van Helsing killing all the monsters. It's a kid's game. Whereas Monster Hunter from Capcom is something totally different. Um, but uh, we did a bunch of games there. And what had happened was that we really were in bed with 3DO and we were doing a bunch of stuff for them, such as like Killing Time, and then we were doing, um, was it, there was another game, Heroes of My Magic 4 is the other one for 3DO, and we were actually in talks to be purchased by 3DO when 3DO went bankrupt. Well, oh, yeah. that threw and all my plans in the garbage, and... Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's what happened with that company, and after that, we had to dissolve the company, and. Um, a lot of us found jobs at EA, Electronic Arts. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so, so I, I can imagine that sort of frustration just uh, that industry of founding companies, since, as you say, you're a programmer by trade, not exactly a business person. Uh, just uh, going through sort of, well, not necessarily just the corporate politics, but just trying to find the right backing to make sure the company stays afloat. And when plans don't go, go awry, and then you have yeah. the, the daunting task of how to move on from that and rebound from that. Yeah, because the when I separated from my business partner at Logicware, it gave me a crash course on what it was like to be a businesswoman. Yeah. And I got some friends of mine who were business people and they gave me all, all like lots and lots of sage advice. And so then when Contraband was formed, I was the CEO. And, but I surrounded myself with people who I would ask saying, how do you do this? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. So by the time contraband dissolved, I was already a very well experienced CEO. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, yeah, just, uh, yeah. But that experience, I mean, it's, uh, would you say it's definitely made you sort of uh, hardened in the business side of things? 
yeah. very heartened. It, it basically it's the it taught me that trust but verify. It taught me that until you have it in writing, it's just words. Um, and the ever adage of everybody wants to publish your title, but the moment you ask for a check is the moment when you find they, if they really wanted to publish your title. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's a uh, yeah, very uh, good perspective to have there. Um, yeah, so my next question. Uh, just wanted to ask you about the game Out of This World. I believe uh, you're credited for work, working on the NES uh, Super Nintendo port for Out of This World, including some additional programming. Were there any particular challenges you had to overcome while working on that port? Oh, yeah. Interplay was cheap. That was the, the big problem. Um, the Originally, Out of This World was created by Eric Chahi over at Delphine Software. Now, he did the um, Amiga version, and I believe he had a big hand in doing the Atari ST versions. Interplay was able to sign a deal with Delphine to do to port the game to other platforms, and of course to sell the Amiga ST versions in the United States. Um, we had a PC version in development, and I was working on that, but I was looking at the game and all the structures, and I said, hey, there's no reason why the Apple IIGS can't do this game. And to which, you know, the management was like, there's no way in hell that the Apple IIGS is powerful to run this game because it's straining the Amiga. And, you know, this is like the epitome of Amiga gaming. There's no way an Apple II could do this. I said, hmm, okay. So I took the source code. Two and a half weeks later on a Skunkworks project, I then put together a demo and the game was running on an Apple IIGS. And they're like, how? How is this happening? And I said, because I told you the game can be written on the 2GS. It says, wait a minute, the 2GS is a 6816 processor, right? It says, yes. That's the Super Nintendo. Yes. Can you do this on the Super Nintendo? Yes. Okay, you got the budget. Let's go ahead and do a Super Nintendo version. And that's how the Super Nintendo version was born. But of course, um, there was this new thing that was being developed called the Super FX chip by Argonaut. Um, and we actually got a sample of the chip. Um, we didn't know what game we were doing. It wasn't until later we found it was something called Star Fox. But they gave us a sample of the chip. And the chip, of course, was barely working at the time. But all I cared about was drawing horizontal lines, nothing more. So I used this, put together a demo using Out of This World using this chip. And I was able to get the game running at a really good frame rate. It says, here it is on the Super Nintendo. But of course, you know, they said, hey, how much does it cost to put this chip in, the, in a Super Nintendo cartridge? And Nintendo was saying like, oh, about $10, $20 per cartridge. Because, you know, this is a prototype. They hadn't actually figured out mass production yet. And it's like, and of course, the answer from Interplay is like, oh, no, um, is there any way? So I thought, hmm. There's this way if I put static memory on the cartridge, which is available, and it's only like $2 a cartridge, that I can use it as a back buffer using DMA to quickly blit. And after a lot of work, I got the game running at about the same speed as the Super FX prototype version. And it was like, okay, how much is a cart? About two, two fifty per cart. No, you know, we can't use the chip. Don't put any add-ons. So says, like, how about a battery for save games? No, use the codes. It's like, how about um, using the fast ROM? 
because on the Super Nintendo, you can use a ROM that runs at 2.5 megahertz or a ROM that runs at 3.6 megahertz. Of course, the faster ROM costs more money. It says, can you make it run on the slower ROM? And I'm like, oh. So like, the, one of the final things I had to do with the game was that I letterboxed it. Because originally the game fit in the whole screen. But because I didn't have enough horsepower to run it full screen at a decent frame rate, I shrank the screen so it looks letterboxed. And I said, look, I letterboxed. Isn't that really great? And they said, <laughs> feature, not understanding. I did that to cheat so I wouldn't have as many pixels to draw per frame, which got the frame rate back up. It's right. you know lower than the other techniques, but it was still faster um, you know, running this. And you know, every now and then there were certain frames in which the game would run a little slower. So I thought, how in the world can I get even just a little bit more speed? I'm almost there. And that's when I came up with a trick where I found the DMA registers ran at 3.6 megahertz. These are hardware registers. But from the CPU's point of view, it's RAM. So I just said, okay, since the game's not using DMA anyways, I'm going to put my uh, line draw function, got it to fit in all of the DMA registers, copied it in there, and then whenever I wanted to draw a line, I would just call that function in the ROM, you know, in, in these registers, and it would run at the higher speed. So it was a poor woman's idea of a fast cartridge. And I got the frame rate I needed, and we shipped it. <laughs> nice, nice. So in addition to proving, uh, uh, proving everyone wrong that you can, on the Apple, build on Apple, you got a, a, another job in doing it for the Super Nintendo. I remember I owned a copy of Out of This World on the Sega Mega Drive. Uh, it was actually renamed Another World. Um, and um, I mean, uh, the comparisons, the difference between the, just the sound quality, obviously, is that the Sega Mega Drive console or Sega Genesis, obviously, as known world, worldwide, is just its inferior sound chip compared to the Super Nintendo. But I noticed, I do remember that the aspect ratio was also letterboxed. And I'm just wondering that maybe the Super Nintendo copied that idea from... I told everybody what I did at the yeah. at Interplay. So I'm certain some of the other programmers, because I didn't work on the Sega Genesis or Sega Mega Drive version. Uh, but I do know the guy who did, Mike Burton. And I know that I told him, oh yeah, I letterboxed it to get the frame rate up. So he probably did the same thing. So if, if, if you had to leave the aspect ratio as it is, then you would have had a much slower frame rate. It would have been oh, yeah. Aimed to, to, yeah, but yeah, totally make, makes sense. Um, okay, so my next question is, having researched your gameography, you're credited for programming two different sound drivers for the Super Nintendo, one for a variety of games published by Interplay, the other for Wolfenstein 3D. Um, what were the particular challenges you had while working on these projects? Uh, I had to learn Japanese. <laughs> you see, in that time frame, 1991, 92, around that time frame, when the Super Nintendo was finally introduced in America, Nintendo was very xenophobic. And really? while they were willing to let other companies program the Atari, sorry, the Nintendo 8-bit, their previous generation, they wanted to hold on to the Super Nintendo for themselves for as long as possible. But because of certain laws and stuff, they still had to open up development to other companies, but it didn't mean they have to be forthright in getting documentation. So when we got the Super Nintendo and the license to do Super Nintendo uh, game cartridges, 
and we bought our dev kit, all the manuals are in Japanese. Everything. And they wow. told us it was going to take them about a year to two years to translate it to English. What wow. really what they were trying to say is, we're not going to bother to translate it in English until the market is dead. And then at that point, yes, you uh, English-speaking cretins can go ahead and uh, develop on the Super Nintendo because we've already made all the money. Um, but Undaunted, I went to... Re sorry, was it uh, Biola College? No, a Coast Community College. And I took a crash course in Japanese, and then I eventually hired the Japanese teacher as a tutor. And to, you know, I learned enough of the language that I could actually read katakana, but I had her help with the kanji and so forth. And I was able to translate, I'd say, easily about 50%, 60% of the documentation. But all I cared about was the pages that had the text specs, the memory map and stuff. So while the other pages were, were probably relevant, I didn't bother translating because I didn't care. Like, you know, what's the consumer guys? What's the technical checklist and so forth? I just cared about what's the memory map? What's the registers? What's this stuff? And we translated it all. Um, and of course, since then, I've since been fluent in Japanese. That's another story. But uh, with that, I was able to then start programming on the Super Nintendo and teaching everyone at Interplay how to program the Super Nintendo. There was one problem, though. The SPC-700s and the sound chip, Nintendo and Sony were not giving any information on how to do sound drivers because um, there were patents involved and there was some com proprietary compression that Sony had for the chipset and they just didn't want anybody to um, know about it. But you see, the magic word was patent. In America, mm. in order for you to file a patent, you have to publish everything about the invention. So, I went ahead and looked up Sony, saw all the patents they had pending, found the ones relative to the SPC-700, read them. From that, I was able to then decipher the compressed data, wrote a tool that would take the compressed data, uncompress it. I played it. I was listening to um, musical instruments for Mario. I pull up another one, pull, decompress it, heard voices. Okay, that means the decompression is working. Now I had to do a tool which did the other way around, which is take the audio file, figure out what's the best compression for it, and spit out those chunks, and then I revert, you know, revert it back, and sure enough, I had play a sound, compress it, play it on the Super Nintendo, sounds fine, decompress it, it mostly matches the original, because it does lose stuff in the compression. And with that, I wrote a sound driver. And I used my Apple IIGS, and I wrote my own assembler, because SPC-700 is its own language. And from that, I wrote the, originally it was the sound driver for rock and roll racing. Then it was used in the Blizzard games, which was Lost Vikings, um, Black, uh, Lost Vikings, um, RP, it's RPM racing, rock and roll racing, Lost Vikings, and I forgot, was it Black, no, it wasn't Blackthorn, but I remember the, the last game, but those are the games to use it, but then later on I went to work with id Software, and I did this game with them, um, Super, uh, Super Nintendo version of Wolfenstein 3D. And I gave them my sound tools and gave them my sound driver and so forth, which is why, if you see, it, there's a source code available on GitHub for something called uh, Noah's Ark 3D for Super Nintendo. My name's still in it, because it was pulled from the Wolfenstein source code, copied to them, and says, oh, sound driver by Rebecca <laughs> So, there you go. But that's how I ended up doing the sound drivers and stuff. It was, uh, you know, learning my Nihongo.
Oh. I just going back to how yeah, Nintendo was uh, very reluctant to really translate all the documentation. I'm kind of surprised because I thought, well, okay, global brand, you would think that they would be a lot more accommodating to um, uh, other markets overseas. I'm very no, surprised. See, that. Let me give you a little lesson of history. Right. In the 1980s, you had the ColecoVision, the Atari 2600, and the Intellivision. These three consoles did not allow anyone to make compatible cartridges. But ex-employees from all three firms left, formed their own companies, and started making cartridges. And because the law at the time didn't know what to do, um, Atari sued Activision, but eventually this lawsuit ended in that Activision was allowed to make cartridges. So everybody was making cartridges, and nobody had a control of the market, which is why during the 1982, 83, 84 years, there was a whole ton of Atari, Intellivision, and ColecoVision cartridges. 90% of them were probably pure and unadulterated garbage. Well, when Nintendo was inventing their device, the Famicom, which we now know is the Nintendo 8-bit entertainment system, they did not want that to happen. They did not want people to reverse engineer the Nintendo 8-bit because they knew they would. And they wanted to keep tight control over the games being developed for the Nintendo 8-bit. This is where it's originated the thing called the Nintendo Seal of Quality. In order for you to make a game on the Nintendo, you had to buy your cartridges from Nintendo and obtain a license. And the way they ensured this is that they put a chip on the cartridge, which is called a copy protection chip. If you do not have this chip on your cartridge, your cart will not work on the Nintendo 8-bit. And the thing was, is that the Nintendo 8-bit, um, the only way to get that chip was to buy from Nintendo because Nintendo was a custom chip and Nintendo was never going to tell anybody how the chip worked. So what happened then was that developers would go up to a Nintendo and say, I want to make a game. Nintendo would say, that's too close to a game we're doing, or that's too close to this, or we just don't want that game on our, our platform, like, you know, porn. Um, so as a result, the Nintendo was single-handedly bringing back the video game market in 1985 and later uh, because they put such a control on the quality of the games being made so that if you were to buy a game for the Nintendo 8-bit, it didn't suck. Not like the Atari 2600, where if it came from Activision, it was going to be great, but if it came from, let's say, U.S. games, um, you're, you're rolling the dice here. Um, well... The Super Nintendo had some copy protection in there too, but Nintendo already saw that the 8-bit market was flooded with all these games. They were still good, but there were just so many of them. So they wanted to make certain that with the Nintendo uh, Super Nintendo come out, that you only have to buy Yoshi games, Mario games, Zelda games, etc. So they make all the money... And if anybody wants to bring games on there, they were, again, I don't want you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But at the same time, you know, they were giving preferential treatment to um, uh, Japanese companies like Bomberman, Hudson Soft, etc. They were making games like crazy on the Super Nintendo. But for America and Europe, Nintendo was going like, eh, we really don't want to saturate the market with your games because we want all the money. Right. It's that motivated Nintendo to come up with all these artificial... Um, artificial excuses and delays 
to keep the American companies away from the Nintendo market as long as possible. Not translating the documents was one of those ways. Uh, now it makes sense. Cool. Uh, so really just the recap was initially based on quality control uh, for the console market and then it born into uh, yeah into this approach that they had sort of become was it more just xenophobic or was it just over protection of uh, their own interests? I think it's a bit of both because what's yeah. funny is like uh, there was a bunch of games I saw coming from Japan that were all crap and I'm like wait a minute if they're allowing those games into the market then why can't we just basically just put out of this world without any restrictions because it's far better but we had yeah. to go through jump with all these hoops but it turns out that they were just playing favorites with japanese companies um you know it, but this was back in the 90s and stuff you know things have changed since then so the nintendo of the 90s is not the nintendo of today that much is true um cool that's a yeah, fascinating insight about you know, just uh there's a brief history on uh, uh, the transition, I guess, from the Golden Age uh, era to just, uh, yeah, it's the next-gen era as uh, as far as the 90s were concerned, or the late 80s, early 90s is concerned. It's just um, very, very um, uh, thought-provoking, eye-opening uh, details <laughs> I got there, <laughs> I got to admit. Um, I lived it, so there you go. Yeah, well, thank you for that, I really appreciate it. Um, now, the next uh, question that I have is uh, going back to your experience of the system ports from Macintosh to 3DO to other you know, other platforms like Super Nintendo and Game Boy. Um, so as you've worked on various console and computer systems ports over the years, did you have a particular favorite system to work on? Um, is there a particular system that you believe advanced your skills as a game programmer? I would have to say the Apple IIGS. I really enjoyed programming games on the Apple II. It was a simple piece of hardware. Um, because it didn't have a blitter, it meant I had to pull every single stunt I could to get performance out of it. Um, you know, my life would have been far, far easier if they put a blitter in it. Um, and of course, the fact that it had the most awesome sound chip um, to... Even today, um, it has a sound chip that would rival modern computers. Um, and I learned a lot about music theory and so forth by writing the music driver for that. Because if you hear the music soundtrack for Bard's Tale or from um, Ultima 1 or even Wolfenstein 3D, um, I'm doing polyphonic sound that can only come from a synthesizer. And this is coming from a 2.6 megahertz 6502 based computer. Um, it just, I loved programming on that machine. And it really broke my heart when the market for that platform dried up and I had no choice but to move on. Mm. Fair enough. Was that also, remind me, was that, uh, was that also the same uh, computer uh, that allowed you to uh, port on the Super Nintendo for out of this world? Yep. In fact, I did all the Nintendo games using a 2GS because the assemblers and tools were all made for that processor. And like Wolfenstein 3D, we used the Orca C compiler. Uh, which compiled C code um, for 608.16, and that is what we use to generate a Super Nintendo version of uh, Wolfenstein. Well, there you go. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, my final question uh, is about the uh, high, the documentary miniseries that appeared on Netflix, High School, 
how did you feel about getting contacted to appear in that miniseries? And what did you think of, uh, of uh, the series overall? Was there anything that didn't get included in the final cut? Oh, there was a lot that didn't get in the final cut. I mean, when they uh, filmed me, they were at my house for three whole days. Um, wow. So, well, the interview itself was maybe about three or four hours long with it, you know, easily reduced down to the 15 minutes they actually put onto the film. Um, they had B-roll of me soldering, painting miniatures, uh, building a circuit board, programming a computer, um, walking up and down the street. Um, you know, like uh, they had a, a whole scene where me coming out of the house and cooking a burger. Um, I mean, there was all these things that we did, and I think they only used like maybe a grand total of 10 seconds of it all. Um, so it's just weird. Another thing also is about Hollywood is that I did know this about the Hollywood industry, but going through it is just still depressing is that from the moment I got the phone call to be in the show to the day it premiered was about two and a half years. So I got the phone call saying, would you like to be interested? And he says, sure, I'll be interviewed. And he says, okay, we'll get back to you. Then a few months go by, then they would call me back saying, are you still interested? So, oh yeah, that's who you are. Yeah, I'm still interested. Then another three more months would go by and then I said, okay, we got a filmed crew coming around. Are you available on these days? And I said, okay, I'm available for those days. And then they would call back again saying, okay, we've got other people, we got scheduled, but we want to film you for three days. So here's the dates we're going to block you out. So, okay, done. Now at this point in time, by the time the film crew actually showed up my front door, it was almost a year have gone by since that initial phone call. So they come in, and it's a full production. I mean, you know, they had a full crew. They had to come and you know, spend like two or three hours just setting up lights and stuff like that. Then I would get on the set, which is my own freaking office, and we would film for like about half an hour. And then when it's done, then they would tear all that stuff down, move to another part of the house, and set it all back up again. And we did this for three days. Once this was all done, they said, thank you very much. We'll get in touch with you, blah, blah, blah. And then, six months later, I would get an email saying, okay, this person is no longer with the production. This, this person's completed, blah, blah, blah. We're gonna be contacting you with this person. And I'm like, okay. And then it's like, every once in a while, I would sing, saying, so what's going on with the show? So, oh, we're still working on it. Until eventually, one day they said, hey, by the way, we've finally been greenlit. The show's gonna be premiering. It'll be out on August uh, something, 2020. I think it was 2020 or 2021. I don't remember anymore. Um, but the, you know, this is, and this was like one month before premiere date. And it says, great, can I see the show? Yeah, you'll see it on Netflix. <laughs> I didn't even know what the show was going to be. And I was sitting there going like, okay, please don't let it suck. Please don't make it me look bad. Please don't make me, because I have no idea what they used in the show. And there was even a time earlier, like a year before the show was premiered, they said, oh yeah, we went to CNN and we found like about half an hour of archive footage of you playing the game of the Atari Space Invaders thing. It's like, you did? Can you send me a copy? I don't have a copy yet. So it's like, whatever. But then the premiere date came and I was like, it's up on Netflix. My friends haven't already called me to tell me how much they hated the show or they think I look stupid, whatever. But let's press play. And then we watched it, and I go, oh, I didn't suck. Cool. <laughs> and there is the whole tale of me being in high score on Netflix. 
<laughs> no, there was a very flashy series, wasn't it? Just very creative, edited, edited animation. Um, so it was a pretty quirky, creative in that regard. Was it? So when they filmed at your house, well, the funny thing was that when they pitched it to me, was nothing like what actually ended up on the screen. Really? See, when they first contacted me, they told me that they were going to do a documentary on the history of esports. Right. So the whole thing was supposed to be about my contest. Then they were going to interview other esports people. Then they were going to go to like the Dota championships and so forth and all the awards ceremonies and things like that. And they were all like all this amazement and so forth about all these awards and, and how esports have evolved. And that's what I thought I was signing on to. Instead, it turns out to be there was some esports. But they were also talking about the history of video games and how they evolved and so forth. So it morphed from the day they first pitched me the concept to the day it actually uh, arrived on Netflix. You mentioned that uh, when they came to your house and started filming, that you mentioned that they, well, they didn't get a green light yet. Um, yeah, what they were doing was that they had already gotten a green light from Netflix. This was already, no, when All I right. said green light, I meant the date of the show to premiere. Because right. we understood the, the series was already in the can and ready to go, but they were waiting for Netflix to determine what would be the day they're gonna premiere it. And that's some magic thing that goes on at Netflix in their marketing department as to, because you know they had to first make a trailer, then have to decide the date it's gonna be premiering, then they have to do trailers leading up to it to get the hype going so that when the show does drop on Netflix, People would go ahead and tune it in. And those are all the things that were going on. What happens? They got the green light that marketing says, we got a date. On this date, it will be on Netflix. But the show was, when I got the first letter, uh, the email, the show was not greenlit. It was just pitch. Um, and what I think they were doing is they were contacting people like, let's say, like uh, Richard Garriott, John Romero, et cetera, to see were they, if they were to be interviewed, would they do it for the show? Once they got commitments, then I guess they made their script and their pitch or whatever it was, went to Netflix. Netflix said, yes, no, whatever their process is, this is something I don't know what actually happened. But um, in the end, eventually Netflix said, okay, here's some money. This is what we want you to do, go. And then that's when they called me the, the most initial time saying, we are now preparing for flying. We are getting film crews. Are you available for these dates? And when I said, yes, okay, we're locking in because we're going to come with a film crew on that day. And then the next day, and then the next day. <laughs> uh, did they uh, take any footage of you doing any programming work? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting at my monitor and I had... Um, you know, I had some, I had to find some source code of some old of uh, some Burgerlib code because I knew that whatever was on the screen couldn't be copyrighted or anything that was violating NDA. So it's like I had to go. Th I did the equivalent of cleaning my desktop to make sure there was no files on there that would say something like you know password files or I had the name of a, a project I was working on or something like that. Um, you know, so I would just make a folder put all the files in there, then move the folder to a, dis a different place on the hard drive. So I still had the files, I just, just they just weren't on my desktop. 
And then finally, when we were ready to film, I would open up Visual Studio, Visuals Code, make certain that only folders that were allowable to be seen, because I just assumed they could read whatever the heck was on my screen. And then uh, they said, okay, start coding. And in my case, I was just more like editing, or copying and pasting, copying and pasting. I wasn't really doing anything. It was just the filming of me doing something was what mattered. And then yeah. they had a thing where they actually mounted a camera on the wall and then they had the room darkened so that the text would reflect on my glasses and that's what they were filming. So it was like a, a sci-fi movie or some sort of hacker movie where you see the hacker looking at the screen and you're seeing text scrolling up on her eyes. They filmed that too. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think uh, the most distinctive image of your appearance on uh, the documentary series was uh, you were playing Space Invaders. I think it was mounted up in the sky. Yep, in that case, I was in the backyard of the house. They put on the roof of the house these uh, multicolored lights, and the lights would flash in different colors. Then they would mount a camera on just above, it was on a tripod, but it was above me, and I had a joystick, which wasn't even plugged in anything, just so you know. So I had a cast with this, I looked up in the sky, and since the camera could look down, I could see the grass and the concrete, so you knew I was outside. The flashing lights, would put colors on me and that was the it was to imply that there was some explosions or thinking going up there and i would just sit there and i think i filmed that for like about uh, at least an hour between takes and each take was about uh, two or three minutes so they start rolling and i was just doing this for two minutes three minutes so okay now i want you to move your hand like this and do this okay do it again okay, this time i want you to look like this you know, looking back and forth, back and forth, as if I'm following a Space Invaders. So pretend that there's a Space Invaders screen there. So moving my head like this, moving my head back, moving my head back this, uh, and just things like that. Then afterwards, they then took that all down, mounted it on the ground behind me, and then filmed me looking up into the, into the sky with the lights flashing on the back of my head and me just doing this. So all you could see is just the back of my head and the lights, even though I was still posed doing this with the joystick in, in my hand, you know, back and forth. And of course, in those scenes, they actually did put a special effect of a Space Invaders board up there going back and forth. Now, of course, what I saw was the night sky. Um, so there was nothing there. Um, or <laughs> I was looking at these bright flashing lights going like disco lights up there. And I was and my job was to look at the screen and try not to blink because of how bright they were. <laughs> but, well, yeah, okay. yeah. but you see film movies of uh, like Marvel movies where the people are acting in front of a green screen. Pretty much that. Yeah, well, I gotta say it was a really effective uh, piece of uh, special effects that that uh, that uh, episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I personally enjoyed the, the whole uh, high school miniseries for what it was as far as a concise, uh, brief history and outlook of video game history. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Well, I never got a phone call for a sequel, so that's about all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, if there will be a sequel, probably won't be one for another probably 30, 40 years, would you say so, Les? Sorry, what was that? No, I was just saying there probably won't be a high school sequel uh, yeah. for another... 40 years at this rate. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? Oh, no. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who knows? All right, David. I uh, just wanted to think, 
Yeah, I just sort of shuddered to think how much mm. uh, next-gen graphics could advance at that stage. Mm. Well, I mean, with yeah. next-gen graphics, probably I'd be doing this all in a VR world, and they're just filming me, and there's actually real things going on up there, and I can yeah. actually see them, so I can act them. <laughs> but, you know, it, me it would be a, a cartoonish avatar, unless we do this, let's say, 10 years from now, in which my avatar would be indistinguishable from a real person. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's been uh, it's been only thirty five years. Let's see, nineteen seventy seven to present day. Let's see, well, eighty two to present day is forty years. So think, in forty years, we went from Atari twenty six hundred games with eight bit graphics to photorealistic VR. Mm. Just think what we'll be doing forty years from now. You know what, Hollow Suites from Star Trek. No, it's even just uh, without VR, just uh, a lot of the games I've been playing, like Jedi Fallen Order, it sort of uh, stuns me that uh, you got actors that have been motion captured and they not just resemble the likeness of their faces, but also getting just the movements of their cheeks and mouths and even emoting. Uh, just the expression of emotion in games is just something so surreal. Where, you know, when I played, started playing, uh, it just... You know, playing arcade games back in the early 90s when I was a little one. Uh, I was just used to sprite animation. It's just, it feels out of this world. No pun intended. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well, let's look at it this way. I mean, we already have games that are using um, AI, shall we say, to simulate a real person or real motion. So it's only a matter of time if we actually have virtual actors that all you do is you just tell them in scripting you know, start at this spot, walk over here, look up here, and act surprised. And then the actor will do it as if you were hiring a real human being, and they'll be emoting and doing everything and speaking their lines, and they will be nearly indistinguishable from, you know, their motions and the actions from a real person. I expect that technology to be available in all games in about five years, maybe ten, because um, they're already doing rudimentary versions of that in uh, major motion pictures when it comes to crowds. Like whenever you see like uh, in the movie Avengers Endgame where you see that giant crowd of Avengers running, well, yeah. many of them were real actors, but all the other people were just um, simulated people and they even simulated their running and etc. Um, so it's only a matter of time before you just tell the computer, hey, can you do a favor and just uh, create me an army of 100,000 orcs, and over here I want about 50,000 uh, horse riders. Make them all unique, so the computer will take a moment. Okay, now everybody's now got different clothes, different enemies, so they're all unique. Okay, I want this army to attack that army. Okay, now you got them doing this. Okay, let's go ahead and put the camera here. Okay, capture all the frames. Okay, ship the scene, and we'll move on to the next scene in the film. <laughs> I think I agree. I think uh, at some point in the future, uh, we'll definitely see that happening uh, in video games. So just the uh, yeah, you probably move away from just uh, sort of the Unreal uh, Engine Five, and it becomes even more realistic, where we just even get actors on stage as if they're acting on the film, and they're all that all their likenesses is just photographed into the, into the game. Well, I mean, look at uh, the movies from Disney, uh, The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. Um, those game, those those movies, those TV series were made using Unreal. Yeah. 
So all the special effects was actually in the Unreal Engine, and the actors themselves was in an empty room with this big video wall behind them that was projecting what Unreal saw. So the character, the actors are acting, and and many of the people like walk around like the stormtroopers and things like that. They're all virtual. You know, they're to say, okay, take generic walk cycle, take stormtrooper, take, you know, replicate ten of them, and now and then change their heights so they're random, and now have them just walk by in a group. And at that point, they said, okay, the real actors, they were going to have this scene. Once we start it, in two seconds, these stormtroopers are going to run by. You need to react and hide behind a barrel. And they'll do that, and that's what's filmed. And the only thing that's real is the barrel and the two actors. Everything else is in the Unreal Engine. Um, look at a bunch of making-of documentaries for both The Mandalorian and uh, The Book of Boba Fett. It's amazing what they're doing, and it's all using Unreal. That's amazing. Well, do they? Yeah, I actually didn't even know they were even using Unreal uh, for uh, those shows. Um, I'm definitely yeah, going to look into that. Stuff like that. They're all 100% Unreal. Guys, I'll show you what game I mean, engines can do in the movie industry. Mm -hmm. So, the yeah. technology. So in hindsight, awesome. it makes sense. It, it makes sense that they use Unreal because of the fact that the, the budget of the shows, I mean, if they were to use real people, the, the, the production would have to be much longer. Um, yeah, I mean, you've seen Star Wars movies. They're fantastical worlds and uh, you know sets that are would easily cost millions of dollars to build. Instead, they just hire an artist for a couple of thousand dollars to do it in a in the Unreal Engine, and then the real actors just sit in this room. And now they're in the uh, the was it the courtroom of Alderaan, and yeah. no one in there is real except for these the couple of actors. I'd love to see uh, Kyle Katarn and Jane Oz from Star Wars Dark Forces making it into a miniseries. That'll be awesome. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that game is pretty much now underrated as, you know, when it came out back then, it was, you know, it had a really good cult following, but now it's just like pretty much forgotten in the in the gaming industry. So, but, like, you know, that... That series was one of my favorite series in the in the Star Wars universe. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it'll be awesome if they could do like a mini series. What do you What do you think, David? Yeah, that would be. Although mm -hmm. I think realistically, we probably would. I'd expect to see uh, the actors who appeared in Jedi Fallen Order, like Cal Kestis, played by Cameron Monaghan, mm -hmm. uh, make an appearance in a Star Wars mm -hmm. TV show because they used Forrest Whitaker's character Saw Gerrera, who appeared yeah. in Rogue One. And he was right. in that game as well. Mm. So I think if anyone's going to have any Star Wars uh, characters from video games cross uh, platform into another medium, it would be mm. th that game, Jedi Fallen Order. Mm. Just making a sequel, Jedi Survive, which is supposed to be pretty good. There you go. But yeah, I mean, I think why not? Um, I think though with Star Wars, they probably would have made changes to the expanded universe. So mm -hmm. as far as I know, so. Mm. Um, still, there's no reason why they can't have Carvatar or any of the Dark Forces characters appear mm. at some point. All right. Um, so, David, are you? Uh, should we wrap it up? I believe that concludes our yeah, interview. Thank you. Concludes, Thanks for joining yeah. us, Rebecca. Pleasure. No right. problem. And uh, hope to see it uh, on your podcast soon. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. Um, hopefully this week or sometime next week. But definitely, this will be. Um, uploaded to uh spotify mm. so uh but yeah awesome. um but rebecca 
thank you once again for uh, taking your time to chat with us this morning. And uh, and I uh, hope you are, yeah. I'm ho and uh, nope. I hope you follow hope me you're well. And... Becky on... yep. <laughs> Go follow me on Twitter, Burger Becky. Yep. Um, I also do a comic book, Sailor Ronco, um, and uh, another comic book, Cynthia One. So there you go. Yeah, I'm sure too. I'll, I'll uh, what I'll do. Um, I'll put you. Uh, I'll put some links down in, in the description as well. Um, your Twitter and all the social medias you have available, and uh, yeah, so make sure when people listen in, they can follow you and uh, look at your stuff. So it'll be awesome. All right, Rebecca, yeah. thanks once again, and uh, you have a nice day. You too. Okay. Take uh -huh. care. Bye bye. See ya. Thank you. Bye bye. bye, -bye.